Hello, ladies and gentlemen, children and beloved house pets. Welcome to the third and final part of our podcast, Life in the Slaughterhouse. I'm Graham Heiss, and I'm here with... Tim Regan. And Raymond O'Neill. Let's get started. I'm back, and let me tell you something. Martin hired me this time, and I'm here to tell you that Martin guitars are much better than any other guitar. Gibson, more like a chipson. Martin, more like gold. I tell you right now, I've been all over, from Tennessee to Nashville, and I've been drunk, and I've been high. And the thing that I go to is a Martin, because Martin is the best. So just remember that. Martin is the best. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're going to be going through chapter 7 and uh, through 10 of Slaughterhouse 5. Um, so chapter 7 is pretty interesting. Um, it's the first introduction to Slaughterhouse, the actual place where they're going to be, um, the name of the book, which is, you know, pretty important um, throughout it. Uh, the Slaughterhouse is, is the main aspect of it. And there's a quote when they're in the city of Dresden and when they're talking to people and... Uh, after the bombings and stuff like that, they talk to this woman and she says, all the real soldiers are dead. And that's interesting because the soldiers um, that have fought and stuff like that, they're dead now. And so she's basically kind of, you know, insulting them a little bit. In yeah. A way, you know? Like uh, sort of taking a shot at their um, <clears throat> uh, willpower and their uh, dignity. Which, for a soldier, uh, typically is a big thing, because in the military you're taught to be proud to serve your country. You're taught to have this sort of pride about you. Mm-hmm. And so saying, like, none of you are real soldiers, you didn't fight and die, you didn't, like, stand up for yourselves and get killed, you, didn't, you weren't struck down like the rest, is basically saying they didn't earn their place in the world. They're, they don't deserve to live how they are at uh, this moment. Yeah, it's interesting, all the little aspects of that. And then moving into Chapter 8, I mean, there's so much that goes on with Chapter 8. Um, 
I mean, one of the quotes is, uh, nothing happened that night. It was the next night that, that about 130,000 people in Dresden would die. So it goes. Um, and it says, you know, it's just the, kind of the introduction of that. Like, he doesn't say when the bombing happens. It's not a surprise. He's like, this mm-hmm. night was peaceful. Tomorrow, there's going to be a bombing. He just says that right out. Like, mm-hmm. he just shows, you know, it's, it's not really foreshadowing because he's kind of just saying it outright that it's actually going to happen. He uh, does that uh, another time at the beginning of uh, Chapter uh, 7 when um, he says uh, in 25 years he would get on a plane that he knew was going to crash, mm-hmm. but he didn't want to make a fool of himself by saying so. I Now, I've had trouble with that because just one thing, I don't understand how, it could, how he could make a fool of himself by saying so because you would look at the obvious answer, which is if he says something like that, people will go, that's ridiculous, preposterous, you couldn't possibly have that information. But he's gone around anyways talking about the Tralfamadorians and, like, he's just been going off on these uh, outrageous tangents to people and he's been doing it very publicly. So what about saying the plane is going to crash makes a fool out of him? Well, I think it's that, um, like, he knew this was going to happen, so, like, he's got to go along with it. And he's not going to try and change everything. When he goes and makes the public speech at, uh, in New York, he knew it was going to happen, but he wanted to uh, keep it that way. Like, even though he was going to die, he still he still went there and spoke about it because they don't the trial Femidorians don't really see um, death as a huge thing, so he just wanted to let things go their way. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh... <clears throat> I, I do agree uh, on... Your viewpoint there with the Tralfamadorians uh, and their view on uh, death and everything. But one big uh, factor that I've noticed with Billy is when we hear about him and his present day life and his soldiering life, we hear two very different characters. One seems very, very ambitious and driven by something. He's, he's going through all these terrible things and somehow facing them without a terrible, uh, at least terrible apparent trauma. We know now with his present character that is not very driven or ambitious that he does have trauma and he keeps reliving the moments that were exciting to him. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's so much stuff that happens in this chapter. Another, you know, big part of it is uh, Kilgore Trout. He's introduced, and he, in my opinion, is one of the most interesting characters. Some people probably won't agree with me, but I think he is. You know, just, just his, the way he thinks. Like, he's got this quote said, he did not think of himself as a writer for the simple reason that the world would never allow him to be one because his books weren't popular and stuff like that. But he wrote about everything. And there was even that one scene where... Um, he was at that party. He was invited to the 18th anniversary party um, by Billy. And he comes in there, and everyone's excited, and they're enthused, you know, because they're all optometrists. So it's nice to have a different person. And it's nice to have um, an, a, a writer there. And they're all, you know, inflamed. But nobody's read his work. And I think that's Vonnegut kind of, like, pointing out how we just follow things. And we're just so happy about things, even though we don't go into them. And we don't dive into them. We just agree with, oh, it's, he's so popular, and everyone's, you know, around him. And he's, even though nobody's even read his work. It's kind of like Vonnegut's pointing out something, you know? Mm-hmm. 
It's sort of an apparent thing in the modern day. It's, um... It, this is a bit of an, um... Awkward example to use in this instance, but I, I think it's uh, fairly correct for uh, this time. We hear about Shakespeare, and everyone knows Shakespeare, even if they've never read his work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People will still act like they have, or they can still assess it without having read it, and they can still delve into it without actually having a first-hand expertise on it. And that's basically what the people are doing with uh, Trout here. They're, they've heard of his work, and they've heard about a lot of it, but a lot of them don't have the actual experience themselves with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's a good point. Um, and there was another quote that said, we're all afraid of something that... Um, that uh, Trout also says he's we're all afraid of something. I think that's good with the war as well. You know, like everyone's like Billy goes to his fears, but everybody else's fears kind of gets involved with that. And there's mm-hmm. fears that are you know going to be going on in the next couple chapters, which we're going to be diving into um, shortly. So we'll see you after this commercial break. Thank you. Today I will talk to you about a stapler like no other. Let me tell you exactly what this is, because you will be satisfied completely. The new Swingline High Capacity Stapler. Heavy duty, 160 staples per use. And let me tell you something else. There is jam clearing, which is in the mechanics, and uh, the metal construction is, of course, of the final steel from France. There is no such thing as a bad stapler when you go to swing line. Every other stapler is terrible because swing line is the best. So line your swings and swing your lines with swing line. The stapler like no other. The stapler that can staple professionally. Welcome back, everybody, to uh, Life in the Slaughterhouse. Uh, we're going to continue going through chapters 7 through 10. Um, so in chapter 9, there's, there's this kind of dark humor that overlays the whole kind of book. It's, 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 a, it's such a depressing book, but then there's humor in it, which is kind of weird, and that makes it such a, a good read and such an interesting read. And it also breaks a lot of the tension that the book purposefully sets up, like... Uh, we at the beginning of chapter seven, it's talking about how Billy's going to get on a plane. He knows it's going to crash, and we're thinking we're going to get taken through the crash. And it builds up a lot of suspense, and there's a lot of tension um, for the reader in that moment. But a lot of that is sort of um, broken or relieved because of uh, Billy's father asking uh, the quartet to sing these songs that are. Um, 
a little uh, inappropriate. I, I I don't think I'll uh, recite them, but um, yeah, the the um, the lyrics of it uh, sort of aim to make the reader laugh and uh, break the tension that it sets up. Mm-hmm. But they should be sad. So that's the thing. Like he he wants the reader to be sad, but he's mm-hmm. also putting humor in it so they laugh but they feel bad after they laugh and they're like oh i shouldn't have laughed you know and chapter nine it's pretty much the crash and also his wife's death i mean that those are two big parts and they've kind of been building up to that kind of saying Mm -hmm. this is going to happen here but it actually all unfolds during chapter nine um you know about um his wife something they say later on after is um I, i i always found that uh talks about death in here are pretty interesting and i always paid attention to like how they say things and stuff, but the uh, it's said that the Twelfth Midorians say that no one ever dies when they say so it goes, and I think that's pretty interesting because in the past, they've always said, like, you know, it's not a big deal, mm-hmm. and then later they said, like, when we remember them, we should think of their happy moments, but now they say they don't actually ever die. Now, yeah. it's interesting that you remark on that because... I found uh, in that a a large parallel, and this might just be to me, but a parallel to the Bible. Because in the Old Testament, we sort of read these stories about a lot of people dying, catastrophes, um, and there's really not much regard for human life in there. And it's, it's just masses of death uh, in there, but... In the New Testament, we uh, hear about Jesus and saying that we will live forever in the kingdom of God and there's mercy, and things are better than we thought. And that seems to be uh, the kind of message coming from the Trelfamadorians in this case. Yeah, they're kind of, you know, that biblical connection. I mean, a lot of a lot of books, different books, have that biblical connection, and that's just another one. It's like examining, you know... Jesus' life, and then, you know, it kind of just dives into that a little bit. There's also the part, like, his fascination with the Trophimidorians and his views and stuff really pop out in this chapter. They really do, you know? Um, so many things happen, and that leads over to chapter 10. Um, in the beginning of chapter 10, it's like, it's super dark. Like, it, it tells, like, 1968. He, he, you know, it tells us the, the, the scene and all the things that happened. And 1968 was a, a dark year for the United States, and it kind of connects that. And then it also goes, you know, it, it just sets the tone into a very dark chapter. Um, you know, and, and even, you know, with the biblical connection again, um, he puts, Billy puts the Trophimidorians, um, on the same scale as Jesus. He puts them on that, you know, that, that scale that they're important as Jesus in his, in his mind. And they had that connection too. Mm-hmm. Um, the, he also seems in, uh, the type of mindset of, I mean, <clears throat> It's strange to say, but he seems like an evangelist. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I see it. I'm not saying he is one that he's going around in the Trelfamidorians are a metaphor for preaching the word of God, but he he is going along um, this path, sort of like a, I guess a zealot, because he goes and he talks about what he believes in, and he keeps doing that, and eventually he is. Um, martyred for his belief. He speaks in a public area, he tells people the truth, and he sticks to the fact that he 
needs them to have faith, and he knows the answer. He has concrete proof, but everyone else needs to take it from him. You know, I actually, I have a different perspective on that, because when he was in the hospital after the plane crash, and the the other guy in the room with him, Rumford, he kept, uh, he was there with his wife, and Billy was saying some weird stuff in his sleep, and his wife was like, what's wrong with him? And Rumford kept saying that, uh, Billy has a mental illness that, like, it, it, and that it brings him back to, uh, memories from the past, and I, I think that, I think that could be a pretty good, um, reason for why he comes, he comes back to these memories right after, because, like, the, the thing that's going on in the present, then he time travels back to a moment in the war when a similar thing was happening. So he kind of has that mental blockage. Instead of not being so much a preacher, he's just mentally unstable. And that's causing him to act like this. And that would explain his uh, whole journey through time. Uh, his time warps, yeah. Plot line. It uh, brings him back to old memories and um, old wounds. Very traumatic events. Yeah, that's, that's a big part for sure. Um, we're going to... Come back to this discussion after this commercial break. Thank you guys for joining us and sticking around. just want to be a man. You will never be a man. Unless to yours. Well, you heard it, guys. Red from the boys over at Gillette. They make everything from shaving cream to shavers, as we call them up here in the north. So if you're ever feeling like things are getting hairy, always choose Gillette. Because it's not only the best a man can get, it's also the best anyone can get. Man, woman, or anything else, if you know what I'm talking about. So, if you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable anywhere, always get a Gillette razor. Because it can take the hair off. Because that's what it's made for. It's a razor. And, and it's meant to take, to, to like, to shave and, and take hair off of, of places. So, whether that's your face or anywhere else, always choose a Gillette razor. Gillette razors are made right here in a country that uh, is a little hard to pronounce because, uh, well, let's just say that the child labor laws are a little bit less there, so we can use them for about 15 hours a day. Anyway, always choose Gillette because that's the best anyone can get. And don't choose any other razor brand because we make everything and we're cheap because we have labor laws that don't apply to us because we work for other countries. So yeah, choose Gillette. 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 Gonna have to be a different man down there. 
Alright everybody, welcome back. Um, so we're going to be going through kind of like the last parts of this entire book. And this is pretty much, you know, it's I don't know if it's the important, but it kind of wraps it up in a way, but it doesn't as well. You know, there's a big talk of death. That whole chapter 10 is just a talk of death. It really is. And, um, you know, there's, there's some, some symbolism with, um, he sees the, the cat, the thing that looks like a coffin at the end. Uh, his carriage or yeah, cart? Yeah, carriage. It kind of looks coffin shaped. And then at the end with the, the birds and, and, you know, they're chirping. They say that, that one, that one, you know, they make uh, that sound. Pooty wheat. Yeah. <laughs> it's a delightful, uh, sound, but, um, <clears throat> I found, uh, interesting about this chapter. Yes, it does start off with all the talk of death, but Vonnegut also goes back into writing uh, in the first person. He he starts, um, he talks about Robert Kennedy getting shot, uh, and uh, his summer home is eight miles from the home he lives in all year round. And he he's referring to himself throughout this entire chapter again, but he is saying the exact same things in the exact same way as Billy Pilgrim. He's talking about Trelfamador. He's talking about um, his father dying. Yeah. And he's going into this on a very personal level, which reinforces the belief that um, he, he is... Uh, Billy Pilgrim, that Billy Pilgrim is written in to be symbolic of Vonnegut. Yeah, he also does this in chapter 1, too. First person's only done in chapter 1 through 10. The we- the rest is, you know, Billy's view and Billy's experience of that. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's these. a big part. You guys know how um, uh, they the Trophimidorians say there's no beginning, middle, or end? Yeah, that's kind of yeah, how the book I mean, is. Would you say that, like, uh, Vonnegut is, like, sort of doing this because... He starts it off by saying, like, talking in first person, then uh, he kind of concludes the book by talking about all the, th- um, all the death and everything, but he's still referring to himself. Like, mm-hmm. this could be the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And um, another thing, going off of our um, conversation earlier about uh, the religious aspects and the parallels to the Bible that this has, it, it's very interesting. Right at the beginning of chapter 10... Um, He's uh, talking about uh, Trelfamador, mm-hmm. and um, he says that uh, they don't have much interest in Jesus Christ. Yeah. And that the most interesting figure is Charles Darwin, who oh, yeah. teaches that those who die are meant to die and that their corpses are improvements. And so it goes. And... That's an interesting uh, position to take for uh, Billy Pilgrim because of after everything he's gone through, to say that they're all improvements would make it easier for him or anyone to come to terms with the fact that they've seen people die, that they have probably killed people, they have injured people, and that their deaths would only mean an improvement. Which... Alternatively, is very different because for Pilgrim, then he would sort of need to excuse his survival. Like, all the real soldiers having been dead and all the dead being improvements, that's... It's conflicting for Billy because he has lived and his corpse have been improvement, but all the 
real soldiers, all those deserving to live, are dead. It's yeah. it's sort of like a paradox. Yeah, even like even throughout the book, like that last part where like the birds are chirping. What do you think those birds symbolize? Like new life for the trail family. What like there's so many things that those birds chirping because that's the last sentence. That's the last thing of the book. That's got a symbol. You know, I, I mean, hate to be that guy, but Billy could just at this point be off his rocker. Yeah, and totally. Saying, and they could be voices in his head. Yeah, like, it didn't say the birds chirped. He said the birds were talking. Yeah, oh, they were yeah. speaking to him. Yeah. And... Maybe that's just... it. Like, it goes into his craziness. It says, like, this is how how far gone he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it just, you know, clarifies how far he, he actually is gone. Really takes uh, Little Birdie Told Me to a whole new level. It does. It does. All right, we're going to be going into the interview with Father Richie now. Uh, thank you guys for joining us, and uh, take care. Okay, today I'm here with Father Ritchie, and we're going to talk about the church's view on war uh, with the book um, Life in the Slaughterhouse pertains to the war in Dresden, uh, World War II. So we're going to talk about a little bit about what the Catholic Church uh, stance and St. Augustine's stance on war. All Father Ritchie, good to be with you today. Same here, Tim. Um, what could you tell us about um, the church's view on war? Well, basically the church, I would say I would just go directly to the theory or the doctrine. I would say Augustine's theory at the time, and now it's the church's doctrine about just war theory. So it's basically, you know, like peace over evil. Yeah. Attention, everyone. Spirit Day stickers are now available outside the dining hall. But anyway, so going back, so it's the just war theory. So the church is always pro peace in the sense that. For them, anything that was not peace at the time was evil. Yeah. And what do we do with evil? We try to combat evil. We try to fight against evil, right? Yes. But now, as we progress in our society, you know, the changes in whatever, like technology, in the way of life, right? yep. the way we, the way we explore resources, the way we conquer places, war becomes, I would say, unavoidable, inevitable. So, the church is basically, I would say, what am I going to do with this? Where, if it's evil, I have to combat this, but it's hard to fight against war. So, the church now basically doesn't see, I would say, war as evil that we need to abhor. Yeah. But it's a challenge that's unavoidable that we have to do something, right? So, yeah. now, the church response is just war theory in a sense that... Okay, it's not evil, but it's a challenge presented to us that we have to do something. Okay? Yeah. So, for them, it's about trying to fight against war, but it is it should be done in a sense that there are a lot of, I would say, questions that have to be answered. Yeah. Before and during the war. Mm-hmm. So, let's say, the main thing is still, like, to promote peace. There's, there should still be this moral awareness. That's the umbrella's peace. Yes. Okay. So why are we going to go to war? Right? So the basic thing is, I would say, defense or defense or whatever, right? Yeah. Defense. If your country, if your state, or if you are attacked by another country, yeah. you just can stand there and let everybody be killed. Yeah. Because that is immoral against the fifth commandment. Yes. Right? Yeah. Thou shalt not kill. So what do you do is you protect. You protect the lives of the, of, 
of let's say the citizens, right? Yeah. So that means you go to war, you engage in war, and that is called a just war because you are protecting the lives of the citizens. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. You are not attacking somebody. That means the aggressor is already like pushing pushing on, on whatever, on, on your location or whatever, on you, mm -hmm. you know, as a state, as a government. That means you retaliate or like you, you fight back. Okay. And that war is justified. So you, like us going to mm -hmm. Germany and, and trying to suppress the powers, that's moral. Even though we're not defending, we're attacking. Well, attacking is immoral. Well, we're attacking for defense, though. Defense, see, that, that's the thing, because there are still a lot of questions, underlying questions. Yeah, like, there's a lot of variables. Because another question would be, well, are you directly in charge of that state or that country, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Because if they're being attacked and they're able to, if they're able to defend themselves, then why help them yeah. in the sense that you're creating this bigger mess? So do you agree with what we did at World War II, attacking for, because there was, pretty much everybody was getting taken over? See, see the prob that was the problem because, see, it's, it's part of this, you know, it's in this very delicate line because yeah. Japan was like, you know, and then mm -hmm. Germany was in Eastern Europe, like all, you know, like all these countries. Yeah. And then, although we don't like war, we didn't initiate the war, but we had to defend. Yeah. You know, and yes, it, I would, some theologians would say it was morally correct, yeah. but some who are really staunch defenders of it's either white or black, they would say it was immoral okay. because it was killing innocent people. Yeah. You know, because a lot of them would say, well, do you think the atomic bomb was, was really, uh, I would say, moral? Of course it was not because it killed innocent people. Yes. Right? So, so th that's one of the requisites. You but know, it like, saved other lives, correct? It saved other lives, yeah. but it also killed, you know, so that's why it really would, it would really defend, uh, depend mm -hmm. on where you're coming from, which perspective are you thinking from, you know, and I would say if you're from the victims of these innocent families, you would say, well, it's immoral, Yeah. you know, because it, that's against God's commandment, Yeah. right? But if you are, I would say, a government official, you would say, I was defending millions of people I was protecting them. That's why it was done. Yeah. So, in your perspective, was it a bad thing or was it a good thing that what we did? In your own opinion. See, it's a, ve a very different generation. I know it is, but as yeah. far as like you, you know, you grew up with World War Two and, and learning about it. What what was your stance on it? And did it I change? I would say, I would say, for us, let's say in the Philippines, we were also being attacked by Japan at the time. Yeah. I would say it was moral. It was a good thing. Okay. Because otherwise, we would be slaves. We would be, you know, all these problems. In Terrible. Society. Yeah. Terrible. Poverty. You know, yeah. and then starvation. Yeah. A lot of things. I would say that was a good. Uh, that was the last resort. Mm -hmm. Because that's what just war theory is. If you've exhausted all other means mm -hmm. of attaining peace, then war is the last resort, and it's justified. Yeah. If you are defending yourself, and I would say. We, we had no weapons. We had nothing. Yeah. And that's why the Americans helped. Yeah. You know, and so it, it's all these things. I would say it helped. I would say it, for me it was moral. It was moral, okay. Because it defended much more people. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, I know yeah. what you're saying. Thank you, Father Richie, for joining Tim, me today. You're Have welcome. A great one. Thank you again. Great job, Tim.
Thank you for joining us on our final part of Life in the Slaughterhouse. This may be the death of the podcast, but as Charles Darwin has taught us, corpses are improvements. Thank you for joining me, Graham Heiss. Tim Regan. And Raymond O'Neill. Thank you very much, everybody. See you in the afterlife.